I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. You remember when we did our first few episodes on the war in Ukraine, when it, the, the most recent invasion started? Yes, I, I think our very first episode on that subject was actually before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, or at least, yeah, that most recent largest invasion of Ukraine back in January of 22, we talked to the New York Times Moscow bureau chief Anton Trinovsky and Yale historian Marcy Shore. And we did actually a bunch of episodes through the spring uh, of that year and, and in the fall of, of 2022, but it has been like a year, you know, since we've checked in there, actually. That's right. And that space seems to mirror a little bit the place the war is occupying in the American media landscape lately. The war is there, but people haven't really been paying all that close attention to it. The war will soon be concluding its second year with no clear end in sight. And yet there are things changing, both on the front lines and in the way the war is affecting writers and artists in Ukraine as they respond to it. And to talk about both issues, we have invited Tatyana Ogarkova and Vladimir Yermolenko back to the podcast. They are the co-hosts of the podcast Explaining Ukraine from ukraineworld.org. Since 2015, Tatyana has been coordinating the International Department of the Ukrainian Crisis Media Center. She teaches history, the history of French literature, the theory of literature, and history of European literary avant-garde in Kiev Mohila Academy. Welcome, Tatyana. Hello. Nice to be with you. And Vladimir Yermolenko is a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist, and author. He works as analytics director at Internews Ukraine, a chief editor at ukraineworld.org, and a senior lecturer at Kiev Mohila Academy. He's the editor of the 2019 book, Ukraine in Histories and Stories. He has received 
the Shevelyev Prize for Best Ukrainian Essays in 2018, and the Petro Mohila Prize in 2021. He is the president of Penn Ukraine. Vladimir, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be with you. We really appreciate your joining us um, again, and we're going to get to the way that Ukrainian writers and artists have been responding to the war in just a minute, but I wondered if you could first just update us on what's been happening. There's been a lot of reporting here in the U.S. about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Is it happening? Is it going too slowly? And now, most recently, there seems to have been some important progress by Ukrainian forces along the front line near the city of Zaporizhia. So where do things stand as of mid-September? Well, uh, in fact, the situation is quite difficult on the front line. The counter-attack uh, of the Ukrainian um, uh, troops are underway for a couple of months already, but there are a lot of problems with that because a lot of territories are uh, really mined by Russian troops. That's why precisely Ukrainian troops had to change in a way their strategy how to advance, uh, not trying to to destroy a lot of troops, Ukrainian troops, that it explains why the advance are slow, quite slow on the ground. They're careful, but uh, the, the most important issue that they're still moving forward, even if we are talking not about hundreds of kilometers, we are talking sometimes about hundreds of meters per day or kilometers per week, but still they are advancing in the south. In the east, the situation is even more difficult because in some places, like in uh, close to Kupiansk in Kharkiv region, northeastern uh, north Ukraine, Russians are trying to attack once again. They, uh, there are a lot of troops in this direction, so they're trying to get what they lost one year ago. Let me remind you that last September, this brilliant military operation of Ukrainian troops, of this Kharkiv operation, took place and they managed to liberate huge amounts of Ukrainian territories one year ago. But now Russians still try to attack in this region. So the situation is really very tense and um, Ukrainian society understands now that it will take a lot of time to liberate Ukrainian territories. Let me add a little bit that that uh, we had kind of both in Ukraine and in the outside world uh, a little bit exaggerated expectations, and it was like a, a, a like in a in a football match or like in a or like in a computer game, right? That you are looking at some soldiers that are trying to liberate certain territories. Of course, in real life, it's it's uh, it's a little bit more complicated because Russians have been preparing for this counteroffensive in the south, and they really built uh, three lines of the defense, and uh, they really, as Tanya said, they mined a lot of things. So we really are, are talking about hundreds of kilometers of very dense minefields. But despite all that, Ukrainians, Ukrainian army succeed in breaking these lines. And now what we are ha uh, having around near the city of Zaporizhia and uh, more to the south near the town of Robotene and others, Ukrainians are really breaking through the first line of defense, which is very, very tense and very complicated and very, very mined. And we see uh, gradually this little little advance, which actually can, if Ukrainians break and, and break this corridor, the first line of defense, second line of defense, and then third line of defense, it is quite probable that 
they will uh, build the, the 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 actual corridor in the south, and Russians will be in a very difficult situation because Ukrainians will be able to reach Crimea, for example, with the strikes. So I, I think we need to we need to understand that obviously the war will be longer than some some expected and we ukrainians were telling this from the very beginning that don't have the illusion that this will be kind of a just a series of brilliant blitzkriegs uh, and we should be prepared for uh, a longer fight and here the question of technologies is very important the question of drones in the air is very important who will actually conquer the air this is very important but it's it's also not uh, we should not also have this impression that this is an endless war an infinite war russians are weakening they actually exhausting their resources they're not helped by uh, by uh, by big uh, big supplies from the outside world instead the solidarity with ukraine is huge and we really appreciate it and it's important that it it lasts well, I mean, that breakthrough that you're talking about, these lines of defense, seems very important because I read in the German news service DW that Russia has committed 60% of its available resources to that first line of defense, right? So the reason that the break in the first line around Zaporizhia and maybe a couple another place that you mentioned is important because if they've, and then they've only put 20%, according to DW, 20% of their available resources to the second and third lines of defense. So I'm wondering... Now that this first line has been broken in a couple of places, does that mean there's a chance for Ukraine to make faster advances, do you think? I do think that there is a chance, but we also should be very careful and understand that uh, it's also a battle of resources. And uh, Russians are also learning. So it's it's wrong wrong to believe that this is a stupid army. Of course, they they did a lot of mistakes. And Ukrainians are smarter, I think. But... At the same time, we need to understand that, well, you have this war which is increasingly going into the air and increasingly depends on technologies. Uh, you, you, we should understand that many things are really done by by infantry, by individual soldiers who are going through very careful through through these really dense minds and losing their lives. And, and of course, we have this, this is a humane dimension of the war that we are losing many, many soldiers. And that is the only way to decrease this suffering is basically to uh, supply the Ukrainian army with better technologies that will help better demand, that will have better target uh, Russian artillery that will ha- um, help better fight against the Russian drones, etc., etc. So we really need to understand that Ukrainians are paying a huge price for this, but at the same time, uh, we do need more weapons, but we do need more technologies and more smart technologies. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. I would also add, I would also add a, an important moment about the time. So, the evaluation about sixty percent effort for the first line and twenty percent for second line, it might be true. So it's only an evaluation, and the pl- time place 
against Ukrainians once again. So the time Ukrainian troops are busy, were busy with the first line, Russians did have some time to prepare the second line or the third line. It's exactly what happened the last year when Ukrainian troops were preparing their counteroffensive in the south. But Russians uh, never lost a single minute of this preparation of the time when Valery Zaluzhny, commander of the chief of the Ukrainian army, was asking for weapons. They used all these long months of the autumn 2022 and spring 2022 to prepare these uh, defense lines. So what they are still doing and what military experts say is that the Ukrainian ter territory is really heavily mined now. If you compare what is happening now to what was happening during the Second World War on, in, this, uh, in this geography, I mean in Soviet Union, because Ukraine was a part of Soviet Union then, so if you compare the level of mining, they are from five to ten times more mines today than during the Second World War. So imagine the effort to, of Ukrainian troops to advance and also also the, the effort to demine all these territories for, for living after because the, all this war is not only about, it's not about sport game, it's not a football, it's not about who wins, who loses, it's also about having a place to live and to get the life back to these territories, you need to demine it. So it will take time and a lot of effort and a lot of resources from both Ukrainian part and hopefully from our international partners. So I think you're, you're both um, giving us some useful metrics to think about what exactly progress in this war looks like. And um, I'd like to keep talking about that. I also feel like Podcasts aren't a visual medium, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the geography, about the map of the war as it stands. We've been talking about Zaporizhia. Can you explain why progress there is particularly important? And if Ukrainians are about to advance further, where they go next? Well, uh, Zaporizhia is a key uh, direction now for a simple reason. Uh, for, for a simple reason. If you start from Zaporizhia, and you advance to the south, you may arrive hopefully to Melitopol. Melitopol is situated close to Azov area and the main plan, so the major plan of the Ukrainian army is to cut in two parts Russian troops which are occupying now eastern Ukraine but also southern Ukraine and Crimea. If they succeed to go to Melitopol and then later to Berdyansk, they will reach Azov Sea. And if Ukrainian troops, and when Ukrainian troops will reach Azov Sea, it would mean that uh, Russian troops are divided in two parts. And given that Ukrainian troops are already able, partly, but they will be even uh, more ready later to control the so-called Crimea bridge, this bridge which Russia constructed after the illegal annexation of the Crimea Peninsula back in 2014. So they will be they will be cutting off this logistics of Russian army from the territory of Russian Federation, and they will kind of encircle all these Russian troops in the part in Crimea and in this, this tiny part of southern Ukraine. It will facilitate things for Ukrainian army to, to fight further, to liberate, to make Russians leave from Crimea and from this part of southern Ukraine. It would also uh, facilitate uh, things in the eastern Ukraine, but in the eastern Ukraine it will be, I guess, in a way more difficult to get Russians out because they still have a huge border 
borderline with Ukraine. I mean, Donetsk region, Lugansk region, all these territories are close to Russia, so they will still be able to, to have these logistic chains for weapons, for infantry, for artillery, for, 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 for everything. But still it will be... So that's why this southern direction is a key, uh, key direction now. Uh, and all efforts, I guess a huge amount of Ukrainian efforts uh, is concentrated in this area. So in the south, those troops don't have a contiguous border with Russia. So if you cut them off from the eastern Russian troops, it's very hard for them to get supplies. So they would be at great risk. Vladimir, you po recently posted a thread over on X outlining what we were beginning to learn about life for Ukrainians in Russian-occupied territories. Let's say and hope that the south is liberated. You know, we'll, we'll learn more about what it's been like to live there under, under Russian rule. You write... Russia doesn't bring Russian law, but brings lawlessness. Could you talk about that idea and, the, and what you're, we're finding out about what life is like under Russian occupation for our listeners? Yeah, so because we, we talk uh, with people who lived through the Russian occupation and uh, either are now on the liberated territories like in, in eastern Ukraine, in the Kharkiv region, or they are... Um, actually escaped the the territories uh, which are now occupied by the Russians from the south, for example. And they all tell us the same thing. Uh, they all uh, tell us, and they all use this phrase, the lawlessness or the, the absence of the law is what they use. It's, it's not what we kind of impose on them. They use this word, lack of the law, uh, absence of the law. And what they mean actually is that when the Russian troops come, uh, at least in the first uh, in the first time, uh, you the the individuals are not protected anymore. So there is no right of, of property. There is no property law. Uh, your property can be taken away very easily. A person, a woman, with whom we talked uh, from Melitopol was telling us that yeah, look, there are Russian soldiers who are living in my house and. Uh, they just, you know, entered and they they took this house without any confiscation, nationalization, without any 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 procedures, and uh, unfortunately and tragically, we have a lot of people, and this is a, a a very long list on every occupied territories of people who are missing, uh, whom we don't know where they are. Uh, they might be alive in some Russian prisons. Or they might be dead, but there is there is no authority who would investigate where they are, uh, because there is no interest in human life. And uh, another another pattern that we see, for example, we we were recently in the Kharkiv Oblast and talked to people uh, who were uh, who were living under under occupation for um, at least half of the year, or nine months, six months, nine months. And they were telling us that it was a normal practice for the Russian troops just to block the entries from from the village. So you are living in a village; you cannot really um, uh, leave it. You cannot you cannot really uh, go away from it. You just uh, you are stuck in this village. At certain moment, there is no supply, no supply of bread. Uh, the, the water supply is not functioning. There is no electricity. 
So you're kind of uh, forced to live with, with the natural economy from what you have from your land, from what you have from your savings, because Ukrainian peasants usually usually save food. And this is kind of a old, old habit of our grandfathers and grandmothers, to which we are, of course, not accustomed to, because we usually, you know, all of us, I think, you know, just think about how to you know, next day go to the to the shop and, and, and buy some food. And usually our food savings are probably for several days, maximum a week. And uh, hopefully the savings of these peasants uh, with whom we talk to are for much longer time and therefore they survived. Otherwise they would not have survived. They would just be dead from, from hunger, from famine. And this reminds us of those practices which the Stalinist regime practiced in, in the 1930s when, uh, during the artificial famine when not only the grain and food was confiscated from the peasants, all food, not only some surpluses, but all food, including all the domestic animals, but also the peasants were banned from leaving their villages and there were people with arms staying uh, on the perimeter of the village and and uh, banning them from to from leaving and it's it's the same which is happening now, so we need to understand this reality. We need to understand that when Russians come and Ukrainian state retreats, that means that basically we have a a a horrific, horrible decrease of human rights. So there is nobody to defend your right. Uh, on life, your right on property, your right on movement, and so on and so forth. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. It seems like when this war is over, and hopefully Ukraine has regained its territory, uh, there will be like years of trials. You know, like trying to investigate the crimes that have been committed during the war. You know, I, I would think that that would happen. That depends on the political will to establish the international tribunal. And so far, unfortunately, we see the situation that there is no political will to establish this tribunal. There is a discussion of what should we do and maybe we will, should we re, re, uh, just establish a so-called hybrid tribunals, which means that all these Russian soldiers would be judged according to Ukrainian law and by Ukrainian and international justice ju judges, which Ukraine says is okay but is not sufficient because otherwise we cannot really judge uh, the, the leaders of Russia. And therefore the huge uh, dilemma right now and the huge uh, advocacy that Ukraine is trying to do is to establish the special international tribunal for for the crimes of the Russian Federation, the same as it was established for former Yugoslavia, the same as it was established after the Second World War for the crimes of Nazis. So listening to you, Vladimir, I'm reminded of the fact that the, the last time the two of you came on the show, we talked about crime and punishment and how those two had become unlinked. Um, so I'll just refer our listeners back to that episode, and we'll link to it in our show notes too. Um, and I also want to remind our listeners that you the two of you host a podcast of your own explaining Ukraine, which we highly, highly recommend and will also link to. And Vladimir, recently you interviewed a Ukrainian poet named Irina Chornohus, who joined the Ukrainian army in 2019. 
and has written about the war and her experiences as a soldier in her poetry. I wonder if you could talk to us about her and her work and, and tell us a little bit about her impact in Ukraine. Actually, Yarina is our former student with Tanya. So we teach at, at Kiev Mihila Academy uh, at the philology department. Uh, Tanya is teaching uh, on the philology department only. I am also teaching on the philosophy department. And Yarina is one of our brightest students, incredibly intelligent, incredibly uh, talented, but also incredibly brave. Uh, so uh, she's a young woman. Uh, she already has a daughter, but despite that, uh, she was very active in, uh, for example, when Zelensky came to power and there was kind of a suspicion in, in, in uh, some parts of the Ukrainian society that he he would be going to trade of Ukrainian interests. And, uh, uh, and Yarina organized uh, during the COVID times uh, practically one person protest in front of the uh, presidential office and uh, we were supporting her in that with with Tanya we were coming and we were she was even organized the kind of a lecture club and we were sitting next to the presidential office and and uh, literally giving online lectures of Ukrainian identity and and, and the need to fight against Russia etc but then she joined the army, so she she went through the all the necessary training, and she's now a an active soldier. Uh, she's a paramedic, so she helps the wounded. But she also is a reconnaissance soldier, so she she she's a drone pilot. And uh, I mean, it's incredible. She's very visible um, in the Ukrainian cultural community. She has two books of poetry. We were happy to organize the presentations of her poetry book in at Penn Ukraine, and by the way, Tanya was moderating this presentation. But yeah, at the same time, uh, she she's really on the front line. And uh, if you read her the second poetry book, I hope it will be translated soon into English. You will understand how uh, it really reflects upon the war experience. How she reflects very deeply. Uh, upon the questions of of the loss of death of uh, of suffering, and this is very very deep. I hope to, uh, Tanya will add on to this because uh, she she knows Yarina as much as as I do. Yes, Yarina indeed is an incredible personality, and this is somebody who is so brilliant in literature. She comes from a very literature family, if I may put it so. Her grandfather was already a writer, so she was gifted in literature. And I remember this astonishing choice of her to choose this military pass back in 2018, just even before Zelensky went to power. She, chosen, she chose to be a soldier, a paramedic, first of all. And she, she she was already a mother at that moment, and so she went to. So she, she she's a witness and active participant of the previous stage of this war, the war which started in 2014. Let's not forget that the war Russia against Ukraine started back in 2014. So she talks. Uh, uh, she talked at that time a lot about sacrifice, and it's a word which is important now because what we see in Ukraine that the best people of this country, I mean, not only military, but first of all, intellectuals, writers, poets, cineasts, talented people in many fields, 
they are acting as simple soldiers. So, and the question is why? This is about sacrifice. This is about, about that these people, they, uh, they really deeply understand the meaning of this war and the necessity of this war. And Yarina was one of these people who understood that maybe from the first moment. So she was on the front line long time before everybody here understood what it's all about. And that is precisely why she protested close to president's office back in 2019. That's precisely why she was so active starting from 24th February. Now she's telling a lot of stories about how it was back in February 2022. She risked really her life. She nearly was killed many times in these first weeks of 2022. But she was not discouraged afterwards and she's staying in, in Donetsk region uh, long weeks and months of this counteroffensive. She's also doing some advocacy trips she went to the United States with an advocacy trip for weapons, so she's trying to, to, to ask for more weapons. And another dimension Volodymyr uh, hasn't mentioned is a feminist dimension. So Yarina is also very courageous because she uh, succeeded. She, um, she succeeded to join an army which was not so much open for women back in twenty. Uh, 2016, 17, 18. So now we have really a lot of women in the Ukrainian army. But at that moment, she had to fight to get her place there, to fight against all kind of sexism, all kind of prejudice, all kind of these cliches about the, the women's places somewhere not on the front line. She, she was one of the pioneers of women, young girl at that moment. She is now 27, so she's been uh, 20, less than 25, 24, 23, 25 when she arrived to the army, a young mother. And she was just making this place possible for other women who joined later. Because in her public activity, I mean, on the social media, for example, in Facebook and others, she's talking a lot about how she had to struggle to get her place there. And this is imp important because she's public, she's visible, and, and other women were considering this kind of choice more seriously after they were, saw what Yarina did. So this is also important for Ukrainian society, I mean, just to, to change all these stereotypes about that men are fighting and women are staying behind. So this is about uh, modernity, you know. And um, speaking of her poetry, I would also add that this extremely powerful poetry. Her last book is something which counts, uh, comes from, from, from really, um, real, real depths, poetic depths about speaking about territory, speaking about sacrifice, speaking about what, what does it life mean and this mean. So this very profound poetry, which uh, um, we do all hope will be translated into English and maybe some other languages. And, um, we see that Ukraine, even if she is not a very much experienced author, she published only two books of poetry, two tiny books of poetry. She's already appreciated by Ukrainian audience and read by, by Ukrainians. She's invited to many literary festivals. And this is not because she is military or soldier. This is because this is a real, really good new quality poetry. 
Well, speaking about the women's participation in, in modern warfare, I mean, I can speak to that because I, my last novel, The Good Lieutenant, is about a female lieutenant in Iraq. And I did a lot of reporting uh, about women serving in Iraq in the American Armed Forces, which was really the first war, for, at least for America, in which women had frontline positions. Um, and it really changed the way that the Army works. I think, you know, this is a very broad generalization, but I think, you know, writers and artists in the U.S. and in Europe generally, as well, and, and maybe the world over, are for the most part anti-war. Nearly every writer I knew opposed the U.S. invasion of Iraq, as, as did I, as I think Whitney did as well. And the, the modernist movement grew out of a critique of World War One, and even so-called good wars like World War II were covered really skeptically by writers like Joseph Heller and Thomas Pynchon. But I would assume because their own country is being invaded by an authoritarian aggressor that most Ukrainian writers and artists are, like Irina, in favor of the war and a tough stance toward Russia. Is that is that right? This war is existential for Ukrainians, for Ukrainian society, but also for Ukrainian writers. This is a war when we see that Russian army is committing a lot of crimes war crimes, but also genocides because they're killing civilians, this indiscriminate uh, shellings. And this is a war for survival for the whole nation. That's why it is simply impossible for any Ukrainian, be it a writer, an artist, or a simple citizen, to take any kind of anti-war position because it's about survival. It's, it's about a aggressor who came here and which aim is to destroy, literally destroy everything, physical life, cultural identity, Ukrainian language. We all know about these practices on occupied territories, what when occupies Russian army, they try to introduce, I don't know, their language in schools, their language everywhere. They are denying simply all kind of Ukrainian identity as it is, but all kind of forms of life which could be different from theirs. So uh, it is just impossible to take any other position because to be a Ukrainian writer in this country and to, to tell that I'm outside of the conflict and I'm against war, this is not about violence, this is about defense, this is about resilience, this is about resistance to this senseless cruelty and senseless aggressions, which brings no um, positive project of a different identity, but this is a religion of destruction and nobody can be on the side of this senseless destruction just for destruction. So this is, explains why Ukrainian intellectuals and Ukrainian writers and Ukrainian poets, they are so, so deeply engaged in this war. They try to talk about it, they try to explain, to express what is all is about. This is uh, about 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 ourselves this is about the the reasons why we defend we want to live we want to, to be ourselves we want to be free and this is about everybody in this country so i would like to add that uh, i think the wording like pro war anti war is is not really correct here because uh, uh, those civilians who volunteered for the army they are not pro war they didn't want this war they, they they don't want to go to the war. They they would rather stay in their cities with their families and uh, and drink uh, coffee uh, in the morning and uh, have a jogging and then read good books and uh, maybe set up a business. So there are so many you know pacifists who <laughs> just simple U Ukrainian civilians 
and very often people are not not having any any warrior instincts who go to the war unfortunately very very unfortunately i cannot really use this for tragically inhumanely unthinkably they they might be dead in in the second battle and for example our friend with tanya maxim butkevich who is now imprisoned in russia for fake allegations absolutely fabricated trial who is uh, who has this uh, very long i think 13 year imprisonment in russia He's a pacifist. He's left-leaning Ukrainian uh, human rights defender who spent the last years, uh, the, the the past years of of his life before the full-scale invasion, to defend the refugees who are coming to Ukraine from various countries and to fight for their rights, for 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 their status. But uh, and he he would be the last person to think about the war. And these kind of persons are taking up arms and going to the front line. Us with Tanya, we are not on the on the front line, but we are regularly going to the front line, buying the cars for the military. And uh, are we pro-war? No, we are against the war. We are pacifists in our in our minds. We want peace to rule over over the whole planet. But just uh, in our case, if we, as one wise person said. Uh, once I don't exactly remember the name. If Russia stops fighting, there will be no war. Is Ukraine? If Ukraine stops fighting, there will be no Ukraine. So this is indeed, unfortunately, we're left with with no choice, and we cannot really compare it with, of course, the invasion of Iraq, which was, for me personally, it was also a war of invasion, and I I, I, cer- I certainly share share your your analysis with you, even if we can say that you know that. Probably, I, I'm not a specialist in this region, so I I I, I don't want to say stupidities. Uh, but we, some people might argue that look, I mean, there was an attempt uh, to to bring some end of tyranny, of course, and we understand that there were other reasons as well and other more cynical and more pragmatic uh, goals. But I do think that there is a parallel between between that. So. Between the Putin's invasion of Ukraine and 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 and, and uh, Bush's invasion of Iraq in uh, 2003, but we cannot really compare it. What 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 we are doing right now? Uh, we didn't invade anybody. We we just defend our land. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. You know, art has always been a crucial way, writing, painting, music, of processing war and giving it meaning so that there's a way to remember, but also sort of live through and, and make something out of the trauma of war. I mean, I think of Pablo Picasso's famous painting of Guernica, which was, you know, commemorating a, a bombing of a Basque country town in northern Spain. You know, there's my grandfather fought in the First World War, and so I underst- I never get to talk to him about it, but I read All Quiet on the Western Front to get some sense of what that would have been like. I wonder if you can talk about um, other Ukrainian artists and the ways that Ukraine's art community is processing, thinking about, and supporting uh, the Ukrainian civilian population during the war. So I, I do think that each war kind of has uh, has its own reaction, right? And uh, 
I really admire uh, a remark, for example, that you quoted. But I think we need to understand that that it, it's not really a literature that can come out from this war. Why? Because the First World War was essentially a war of disillusion when so many people were sent to the front line and uh, and were sacrificed. And there is a beautiful poem by Wilfred Owen, uh, uh, a, a a British poet, uh, about I don't I don't exactly re- remember the, the the title, but it was it's it's about the, this. Uh, story of Abraham and uh, Isaac and this sacrifice. And I, I do remember that uh, that last phrase is that uh, despite the fact that Abraham saw the angel and uh, saw this, uh, uh, this uh, yeah, I just, I like, I like the name, the, the lamb that he needed to sacrifice instead of his son, uh, he did decide to sacrifice his son, and and there is a phrase that he he killed his son and and half the seed of Europe one by one. A, a very beautiful poem which we we give I give to to my students at my courses, and I think this is is a resume of of how many writers and artists perceived the, the First World War. It was really about this disillusionment that some power of, powerful people just sent those young boys and girls to die for nothing, for imperialist ambitions. From this war that we have from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I do hope that something like that will be will be in Russia, in Russian reflection about the war. I don't I don't find it Unfortunately, I, I I do think, and and there is something that some people, not only Ukrainians share, but some foreign intellectuals share it. And we just had a conversation with Timothy Snyder, who who was in in, in Kiev recently, and. Our latest episode from Explaining Ukraine is a long conversation with Timothy Snyder about freedom. So I really refer to it as a, as a very deep conversation of almost two hours. And uh, and he said one thing that he communicates with the Russians and Ukrainians. And one difference that he sees is that Ukrainians typically feel guilty for not doing enough. And I really share it because this is my feeling. I I I wake up every morning with this feeling that guilty be, before those people who have died, before those people who are on the front line, and therefore this is kind of a also a a petrol an energy that leads us for more action. Whereas Russians very often they try to show to everybody that they are not guilty, you know. And uh, but this well, is. I guess another... I'm, that's what I sort of feel like is like maybe the literature that comes out of this war on the Ukrainian side will be very different than the literature that we've seen, you know, in America about the Vietnam War or in Germany about the you know the the First World War, the Second World War. I think we'll, I think it will be different in character, but that doesn't mean that there won't be some kind of literature that comes out of this. Yeah, war. there is already literature. Maybe I will leave the floor for Tanya to add, but. In our community in Pen Ukraine, and I'm very proud of be, being uh, president of Pen Ukraine, we do lots of poetry readings, and lots of poets are my friends. And I see this poetry in the making. This is incredible poetry, and this is not not a poetry about about politics or about you know. It's a very humane poetry. It's it really goes very deep into human experience, which faces the war and faces death. 
and uh, the poetry of our friend Victoria Melina, who was recently killed by the Russian missile and died on the 1st of July, is this type of poetry as well. Although Victoria only started writing poetry after the full-scale invasion. And there are lots of so many other genius poets, I think. People like Katarina Kalitko, people like Sergei Zhadan, of course, people like Yulia Musakovska, people like Ostap Slavinsky, like Halina Krug like Marina Ponomarenko, I can quote names and names. And uh, this is, I, I, I really advise uh, literature agents all across the world to, to find these poems and to start translating them as soon as possible. Well, uh, Tatiana and Vladimir, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And listeners, we want to remind you again to tune in to their Ukraine World podcast, Explaining Ukraine. It is in the show notes, and it is also on your favorite podcast app. Tatiana and Vladimir, thank you. Thank you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Anne Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction podcast YouTube channel, and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!